so we continue with our class on Paul's prayers, and today specifically, uh, we're going to look at Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it's going to be verses 3 through 12. So if you have, a, if you have your Bible, I'd say turn there, and you might want to keep it open there, and maybe interacting with the passages there. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 through 12. Now, as, I, as we read the passages, I want you to pay close attention to what exactly Paul prays about. <clears throat> All right, let me go ahead and read it. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant you relief, you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, one of, one of the blessings of uh, being able to go straight into the Word and pull out a specific prayer from Paul is the obvious, that it's the Word of God, it's Holy Spirit-inspired, and we can just look and observe and dissect it, and we're going to gain a lot from it. Um, and so, um, before we examine it, I want to give you a little context of what we just read. And, and why Paul writes it in the first place. Uh, the context of this writing is that this is the second letter that Paul sends to, to the uh, Thessalonian church. The first one, right, First Thessalonians, was also a, a letter, a pastoral letter, helping this church to understand their conversion and what it means to stand firm in the faith and to persevere, especially since they were facing persecution. And Paul also deals with some misunderstandings that they had about the future return of Christ and how it applies to people who have already died. Uh, and this was relevant to them because they were facing death and, and all kinds of persecutions in their church. Uh, he helps them to understand what it means to live for Christ now as they await the final return of Christ. And you can see how some of these themes are relevant to a church who's being persecuted, right? They're thinking about the end times. They're thinking about death. They're thinking about the return of Christ. And so Paul, in his first letter, he's addressing these topics pastorally. 
And the, the passage that we just read is 2 Thessalonians. And in this letter, he writes again, sort of as a follow-up to his first letter. And in this letter, he deals with more misunderstandings of the return of Christ. But more specifically, what he's doing in that letter is he's encouraging them in the midst of their persecution. He starts by stressing that he and the elders ought to always be giving thanks to God for that church in Thessalonica, for the specific signs of grace that are being revealed in them. Okay? And if you fast forward to verse 11, he mentions that, he says the words, to this end we always pray for you. In other words, his prayer here is a prayer of thanksgiving. He is thankful that in the midst of all the chaos that's happening, persecution that's happening, all the pressure that's upon this church, and by the way, they were a new church. They were a young church. And and there were so many signs of God's grace uh, in that church. And you're going to see what those specific things are. Um, Again, part of the encouragement was to inform him that he's been praying for them, right? Thanking God that they're bearing much fruit. Now, there are many things that Paul could have prayed for, yet you'll notice that Paul's prayer here is extremely heavenly-minded. He's he's not thinking too much about the budget. He's not thinking about, uh, you know, what what hymnal they're using. Um, And I I know I'm, I'm being anachronistic a little bit. I'm I'm thinking about modern church. Um, But all that to say is he's not thinking so much about the temporal. Um, And not that the temporal doesn't matter, um, but he seems to have a first priority in his mind, in his heart, uh, the things of heaven, the hope that that we have in in eternity. So again, uh, his prayer is heavenly minded. He places eternal things in higher priority than the temporal things. And so as we examine this text, again, my hope is that it will stretch us, right? That it would encourage us to pray differently, to have a greater sense of prioritization for the things that are eternal or eternally significant over the things that may not necessarily have eternal significance. And you'll notice that Paul had two key components in the passage that he just read in that prayer. The first one is thankfulness for signs of grace. He was thankful that he was able to see the Holy Spirit working in strange, unique, and powerful ways that were unnatural, uh, for lack of better terms, with just any community. Uh, this, this specific church um, was bearing fruit that only the Holy Spirit could have produced. So again, the first point that we see in that passage is thankfulness for signs of grace. And the second thing we see is a confidence in the prospect of vindication. Confidence in the prospect of vindication. What that means is Paul's prayer had a kind of confidence in the coming of Christ and what he was going to do in solving the problems that the church was facing. And so as Paul prays, he's praying, giving thanks to God for all the good fruit, but he's also praying with the coming of Christ in mind. And he was saying words that served as an encouragement, telling them, don't worry about the persecution. They're abusing you guys. 
You guys are facing many trials, but guess who's coming back soon? Jesus Christ is coming back, and he's going to make all things right. And it's not that he's going to come and make things all pretty. He's going to come, and when I say he makes things right, he's going to bring justice. The people that afflicted you, he will come back and, pay, and make sure that they pay for that. And that kind of confidence informed his prayers. His prayers were powerful. His prayers were eschatological, thinking about the return of Christ and the justice that, that Jesus Christ will come to bring. So let's talk about the first point. Thankfulness for signs of grace. So in this passage, clearly, thanksgiving is a fundamental component of the mental framework that controls Paul's prayer. If you look at verses 3 through 4, it says, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. So, what is Paul thankful for? He's thankful for the faith of those church members. Their faith is growing abundantly. And he's also thankful for the love that each one of them have for each other. And that is increasing. It's, it's powerful. This is a wonderful insight of Paul's heart. And we see from this that these are the subjects that stir Paul's heart. These are the things that, that, that move him, that draw him to pray. He, see the, he sees these things, and that's priority in his prayer life. And in light of that, we should stop now and, and examine our own hearts, right? Think about your own prayers. What are the things that we commonly give thanks for, right? We say grace at meals. We thank God for our food, and this is perfectly appropriate. We give, thank, we give thanks when we receive material blessings. Um, we sigh a prayer sometimes after a near miss on the highway, uh, a brief Thanksgiving when we hear about someone who, who we love coming to Christ. Those are all good things that we, we pray for. But by large, our Thanksgiving, from my perspective, seems to lean more towards our material well-being. And I could be wrong. I don't want to misjudge anyone who um, has a heart like Paul's. But I think it, it, it's, a, it's a common tendency for us to think more earthly when we pray. Think about our material well-being and our comfort. And the unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for oftentimes betray what we really value. Or maybe it just proves what we really value. And so uh, this should be an opportunity for you to think about what are the things that you really value. And that's going to be evident in, in what you pray for and how you pray, how you pray for it. But this is what makes Paul's prayer so special. First of all, we see in verse 3 that Paul gives thanks that his readers, the church, that their faith is growing. Uh, and since he, since he speaks of their uh, growing faith, he's not referring to uh, growing in numbers. He's not saying, wow, I'm so encouraged that your church is packing out. That's not what he has in mind. He's, he's thinking uh, about these particular people growing closer to God and becoming spiritually mature. Secondly, that same verse we read that Paul gives thanks that their love is increasing. And what he has in mind in this context is not merely their love towards God as individual, isolated people. 
though we ought to assume that each person individually is growing in their love for God. But he, he's, he is excited because their love is growing for each other. And that's, that's um, absolutely Holy Spirit inspired there. That, that is a work of the Spirit. When you see a church, especially in the midst of persecution and all the pressure that they are facing from the outside world, then they start to love each other in the midst of that. Now think about us here in this church where we have so much comfort. And it's not to say that the world is not putting pressure on us or that we're not facing individual trials from the world. But comparatively, we we have it better. And yet oftentimes we find ourselves quarreling with another brother or sister or being uh, offended. Our personal sensibilities are not in line with scripture. We're a little bit more sensitive than what the scripture requires of us. And so we're easily offended and the love is not evident among each other. Paul here is witnessing the spirit working in this church and he's, he's giving thanks to God. Uh, that practical love for one another, we see that in John 13, 34 through 35 as a command, right? Jesus uh, says this, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in the midst of their persecution, they're loving one another, and this is a testimony to the world that something is different about this, this group of people. That the love that they share to one another is supernatural. This is a love that signifies that they follow Christ. Now let's think about the subject of growing in love for one another. Think about that for a minute. If you think about a, a, a social gathering that's not a church, right? A closely knit society with shared ideals and goals. Um, think of a book club or a football team or, uh, I don't know, some social club. Uh, it, it, it would be easy, in a sense, to foster love within that group, right? Um, a certain amount of fraternal depth or, common, or commonality that they all share would bring them together, right? Um, and it doesn't mean that they won't face some uh, conflict, but it's not hard to imagine a group that has something in common, having a, a bond or a love for one another. Is that the same thing that's happening in the church? Is it that we have to meet together um, and share a lot of things alike in order for us to be bound together in love? No, right? Especially the church, right? Ideally, uh, the church is very different. It's actually made up of people who oftentimes are opposites in every way. Um, You'll have rich and you'll have poor in the church, right? You have learned and unlearned. Not in this church. Everyone's learned. Um, You have practical, impractical people, sophisticated and unsophisticated people. You have disciplined people and people who are not disciplined in anything. Uh, You have people who are intense in their character. Some people are carefree. You have extroverts. You have some people that are more introverted and everything in between. 
Uh, the only thing that holds us together, because really this is an impossibility. Um, yeah. What, the one thing that holds us together is our faith in Jesus Christ, our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, and, and I say that in an earthly, um, with an earthly perspective, it, it's really the Lord and his spirit that keeps us together. But again, just to, just to pinpoint what the subject is, that is in the middle, that keeps us bound together. It's Jesus Christ. Now what happens when we become a culturally hip church, which that'll never happen, but, <laughs> but what happens if we start becoming culturally hip? Well, um, we'll start adapting some of the things, the things that people have in common out there in the world, we come together, and what you'll find is that everyone here will look the same. All of us will wear you know, the skinny jeans and the long shirts and the big hats because we're hip. But we all look the same. And then, and then you have a visitor, right? And then the visitor comes in and he doesn't, he or she doesn't fit in. He's like, I can't, I can't, I can't see myself fitting in those pants. So there's no way that I'm going to fit in this church. So when he, when he or she sees that, he's already isolated from the church because what is the common thing or the common theme of that particular church is this sort of hipster culture or whatever it is that they unite around and we i've seen it all and i'm sure some of you have seen it all there's a hip-hop church there's a cowboy church there's there's all kinds of churches that are united on the common theme of some particular culture right and and keeping in mind that culture changes people change and especially now with uh, the way that we're all connected with uh, the internet and social media, the trends are changing faster than, you, you know, you know what. So the uh, point of it all is that the only thing that's going to bind us together is this subject of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and that alone. And we have to protect that, right? If you have friends in the church, that's great. If you have certain cliques, that's fine. I'm not, against, I'm not necessarily against cliques. But you have to also consider the, the point and the purpose of the church is that you have old, young, rich, poor, um, people of every, every background coming together united on this one thing. And if you start, if your experience in the church starts to uh, push away Christ in the center, and you start bringing other things, you're going to see that the church will, will, will fall. Nothing is strong enough to keep us together. Uh, especially considering all the all the differences that we have. Uh, when Christians do grow in their love for one another, for no other reason than because they are loved by Jesus and that their love for Jesus is growing, that growing love is an infallible sign of grace in their lives. When you start to see black, white, Spanish, old, young, people of different backgrounds, different cultures, different uh, social status or whatever, coming together and united and loving one another, that is a sign of the Spirit's work in that church. And on top of that, we see that Paul um, says in, in those passages, he says, every one of you, right? he uses those words, every one of you, when he speaks of the church. In other words, it seems that each and every member of that church was caught up with that understanding, the, the importance of being united and to love one another, 
each and every member was on the same page when it came to that. And, and not just one small group who was spiritually, more spiritually mature than the other. All were on the same page when it came to loving each other. And this was truly a work of the Spirit and worthy of a prayer of thanksgiving. This is why Paul prays for this. He says, wow, this is amazing. Another thing we see from this passage is that Paul gives thanks that they are persevering under trial. And he says in verse 4, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. And so what we should notice there is that Paul's gratitude to God is not um, exclusively private. This is, this is something that he's praying for, but he's also bringing attention to or, or revealing and, ex- and expressing to all the other churches. Because the faith and the love of the Thessalonians had increased, they were spiritually strong enough to persevere under the persecutions and trials that they were enduring. Uh, their steady perseverance was so outstanding that Paul boasts about it among God's churches and he does it publicly. Uh, this doesn't mean that Paul was saying, look at all the great churches that I planted. Look at the Thessalonian church. They're part of my network. Um, that would be boasting in himself. But he actually is saying here, look at the grace of God and how he is working in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. Look at the way that they withstand pressures and persecutions. This was a testimony of God's grace uh, and also a great example for other churches. So with that, again, we should stop and examine ourselves again. Uh, What do we often thank God for? Paul was truly heavenly minded there, right? We remember that Paul says in Colossians 3, he says to set our heart, set our hearts on the things above. Let me read that, that passage. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 2. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so, it's a a command, if you will, to be heavenly minded. Now, if you are uh, the kind of person that loves to evangelize and is very missional, um, you're going to feel a tension between being heavenly minded and functioning here on earth. And uh, some have gone to the extreme of saying, well, I can't be too heavenly minded because then I'm not going to function well as I interact with people of the world. No, one, no one's heavenly minded. So if I'm too heavenly minded, I'm going to be of no good. Um, and some, some would say that this is, this is a good missional model but not according to scripture the more heavenly minded you are the more truly human you are the more um, your mind is renewed and you're able to uh, reason right and rationalize right Um, the the more in line you are with God's uh, prescriptive will right the things that he uh, requires of us and calls us to to uh, live out, which is his law, his, his character, those things are more embodied in you if your mind is constantly renewed by the word of God, and if you're constantly thinking about 
um, what matters to God more than what matters to man. And, and God designed it that way, that in order for you to function well as a human being, you should be walking in accordance with the word of God, with his, uh, de- with his decrees, with his commands, and not be um, tossed to and fro by the ideas of the world. Some people think that I'm going to be better at reaching people if I'm more like the world. That's not true. The more you're heavenly minded, the more you're going to be um, informed and well-informed on how to speak to people, how to deal with people, and how to deal with all the uh, different uh, ideas that float around in the world. This is a command. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Brother. Sure. Different definitions, like you know, yeah. in Scripture, the apostles are clearly heavenly minded. Mm-hmm. Function throughout different issues within this world. Yeah. Dealing with family relationships, work, just political issues. Yeah. Thing. I think sometimes people have a conception of being heavenly minded, like uh, I don't like guys a- that are like, I quit this job, Max. Everybody's cursing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So first, I would I would say that um, being heavenly minded is not to say that the earth is the earth or the body or the things the responsibilities that are given to us are bad. In fact, being heavenly minded is going to inform how we ought to live on this earth. So that you can't divorce the two. Right. And, you know, there, there has been ideas that have come into the church where there's this sort of dualism that happens where everything that is physical, everything that is temporal is absolutely bad. But you can be heavenly minded in how you eat or the enjoyment of the gifts that God gives you when he gives you food. You can be heavenly minded in uh, the way that you work in your job here on earth. Um, so it. I'm glad you brought that point up because there is a lot of that, I think, still seeped into our brain uh, because of modern Christianity, especially here in America, where there's sort of this escapist kind of Christianity where it's about um, escaping this world as opposed to being a light in the world, being able to function in every sphere in the world. And so being heavenly minded simply means that... um, your first priority is to please the Father and that the will of the Father also be done here on earth as well, as Jesus prayed. It's not that Father rapture us and take us away from this earth. It's Father, keep us, as Jesus prayed, keep us in the world, but help us to function for your glory in every way. So uh, all that to say is God has something to say about every subject that you can think of, every sphere that you find yourself um, living in. Uh, And so being heavenly minded is knowing what God thinks about these things and and walking in those ways. I don't know if that's helpful, um, but that's a very important thing that you you pulled out. And if anyone has questions about that, we can talk about it afterwards as well. Two scriptures come to mind. I can't quote them perfectly. Yeah. Renewing your mind Mm -hmm. day by day and doing everything as unto the Lord. Amen. Yeah, yeah. That's a very important one there too. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, if what we highly cherish 
belongs to the realm of heaven, our hearts and mind will incline to that which aligns with heaven and all its values. And it, will ble- it would bleed out in our prayers. Right? But if what we highly cherish belongs to the realm of the earth, and when I say that I mean um, investing and having your heart um, invested in things that pass away, and, and the merely transitory, then our hearts will incline to that, uh, that as being of top priority, right? The things that are transitory. Uh, but we learn this principle from our Lord in Matthew six nineteen through 21. He says, do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's just a good, um, a good thing to think about when we think about our own personal prayers. How does this relate to our prayers? If in our prayers we are going to try to develop a mental framework in the way that Paul does with his prayers, then we have to seek to have our hearts shaped and desired. Uh, or shaped to desire, to see faith increase in our brothers, to see signs of grace increase in our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, are you concerned about your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church? Are those things stirring your heart up and making you want to pray and and say, God, I I see so many good things in my brother over here or my sister over here. Um, Thank you for that. Is, Is that your... Is that what's going on in your heart often when you think, I got to pray today? Or is it, is it more like, oh, I got to pray, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I have this uh, test coming up or I have this interview coming up. Those are, those are important things to pray for. Um, but imagine if we mature in such a way that we pray for that, but we also start praying, uh, giving thanks for the signs of grace that we see in the church. If our, if our hearts and our minds were that heavenly minded. Um, again, think for a moment, what have you thanked God for recently? Again, this is not to say that we, should, we shouldn't thank him for the little or the temporal, but we should consider um, thinking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, one way is to maybe go over a list of the members of this particular church um, and, and quietly in your own private prayer, thank God for the signs of grace that you see in their lives. Um, do we make it a matter of praise when we see evidence in another person growing in maturity? Those are things that, that we, we should long and seek to pray for. That second point, and this is the final point as well, uh, confidence in the prospect of vindication. Confidence in the prospect of vindication. This is something that we see in Paul's prayer there. So, so the faithfulness of the Thessalonian church under trial, the faithfulness for which Paul just gave thanks for, itself constitutes evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, Paul tells them that they'd be considered worthy of the kingdom. If you look at verse 5, it says this. It says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Being uh, worthy of the kingdom of God because they're suffering, this doesn't mean that suffering equals the kingdom of God. 
right? Because you suffer, then you deserve to be in heaven. This doesn't mean that the Thessalonians somehow earned the right to enter the kingdom of God because they persevered. Rather, perseverance is just another sign of, of the grace of God in their lives. That's evident. Uh, perseverance is evidence that they've been counted worthy by virtue of the gospel. So Paul assumes here that real Christians will in fact ultimately persevere. That's just the assumption there. And we know this because there's other passages in scripture. Matthew 24, verse 13, John 8, 31, Hebrews 3, 14, 1 John 2, 18 through 19. All those verses support this concept that you're saved by grace, but perseverance is just a sign that reveals that you're truly saved, that the Spirit of God is within you, and He will empower you to get through these trials. Anyway, moving along, I want to note that in the following verses, verses 5 through 10, there are two themes that Paul brings out. First of all, the kingdom of God in this context, he's speaking about the ultimate kingdom, the consummated kingdom, the final reign of God without contention, the final triumph of God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he's talking about. And the second theme is that the perseverance displayed by the Thessalonian church is not just stamina without purpose, right? It's not like Paul is saying, or, or even God is saying, I want to see how well you can persevere. To no end, I just want to see if you're an exercised church, that you can persevere through trials so that we can clap at the end and there's no purpose for it, right? Christians are not masochists. They don't want to suffer for no reason. They don't look around for persecution. Some, some do, but, but that's not what we see in Scripture. Instead, they are prepared to suffer and to endure because they have their eye on the goal. It, it, it's simply this, that you, you ought to live a quiet and peaceful life, as Paul says in, in, in uh, the New Testament. Living in obedience to God, wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, in your neighborhood, in your job. And when persecution comes, it's just a matter of you standing with the Lord. That's it. Standing with the Lord, persevering through those trials. Not because you, um, not because there's um, reward in the sense that because you persevered, you're a better person or a better Christian. It's because it, it's motivated and fueled by your love for God that you count it worthwhile, that because you love God so much and because you, you, you want to continue in that sweet communion with God, you would rather suffer in the flesh than to um, do this with a, a motivation that um, if I do this, and I'm thinking of Islam, for example, if I do this, I'm going to get all kinds of uh, you know, riches and they say things like virgins and things like that. That, that's not the motivation of the Christian. We're motivated be, by our love for God, and obviously because he loved us first. And, and that's important. That's what it means to be heavenly minded, and that's the grace of God seen in these people that Paul is talking about. He's saying, wow, they love God so much that, they're, that because of their love for God, they're able to endure that level of suffering. So again, it's not about uh, stamina. The goal is that, or the, the the reason why they endure is that they have their eyes on God and God is precious to them. 
That is the goal, or that goal is what Paul talks about in these verses. Not that he focuses in heaven per se, but rather Paul focuses on what the onset of the new heavens and the new earth means for believers and for those that oppose, oppose God. We see on the one hand that uh, verses 6 through 10 tells us that God is just and he will give relief to those who are troubled and being persecuted. And on the other hand, we see that those who oppose God, they will be suffering um, the just wrath of God. Um, what does the onset of the new heavens and the new earth mean for those who oppose the Lord? If on the last day there is vindication for believers, these passages tell us that there will be retribution for unbelievers, a payback. God will hand everyone their paycheck, basically. Um, we read in verses 6 through 9, Since indeed God consi considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant you relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, Inflict, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of his might. And so this statement says two things. That when Jesus comes, every unjust affliction that was placed upon you or those um, will receive punishment and that Christ will inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And from this statement, you can sense almost that Paul is trying to bring encouragement to the suffering and persecuted Christians, reminding them that every wrong that was done to them will be punished. And, and I, I personally find that very encouraging. That the person who wronged you and scarred you deeply will never get away with it. Never that God will make sure that they will pay every cent. Now here, in this context, we may not be persecuted in the same way as that church, but think of all the injustices in the world that exist today. From child abuse, to molestation, to rape, domestic violence. I've, I've heard even <clears throat> horror stories of Christians in other countries who've been captured and tortured. Christian fathers forced to see their family raped and tortured. And while many out there, the, the positive hit Christians, while many feel that, they, that God is being too harsh when he says that he's coming with, flame, with a flaming fire, they say, that's not, that's not the God I serve. That's an evil God. Folks who say that have no idea of the dark sins that exist in the world and the injustices that happen, especially to children. And not only that, but I would say that people who think that way are ignorant to the depravity that's within them as well. As if God is not going to punish that. The justice of God is good and right. And those who have suffered unjustly, those of, of you or anyone here who have suffered unjustly, you know the sweet sound of that, right? That God is coming back uh, with a vengeance. There's a sweetness of what this is about. You feel the weight and the glory of this text when Paul in attempt to encourage these persecuted saints, he tells them that God is coming back with a vengeance. And in verses 9 through 10, we read, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so we see from this that the final picture is not a pretty one, at least from believers. And I should mention that hell will not be a place where sinners will be crying for another chance. Father, give me another chance. I didn't think about it. Begging for another opportunity to repent. That's not what we see in Scripture. In fact, there's no evidence anywhere in the Bible that there's any repentance in hell. The biblical picture actually suggests that evil and self-centeredness, self-centeredness persists in hell in the people who are in hell. And it continues to persist, and therefore God's wrath continues to persist there. Because where's grace in hell? There's no grace. The grace that saves us, that gives us the desires to repent, that's gone. So there's no evidence in the Bible that anyone in hell is, is, is asking God for forgiveness. Now on the flip side, we see in verse 10 that God will be glorified in the saints. And God will be marveled at among all who believe. That people... They're witnessing the glory of God in the people of God. will see the glory of God in his people. And this is what it means that God will share his, that we're partakers of the glory of God. That we share in his glory. It's, it's an amazing picture. If you're a believer today, you long for God to be glorified, right? That's, that's, your, that's your life's purpose. Your Christian life isn't about selfless, selflessly wanting to be in heaven with all the riches of heaven, but to be with the God of heaven, right? To be with our Lord Jesus Christ. And from this verse, we see the ultimate goal of all of life, which is to marvel and behold the true and living triune God. Christians in the time of the Thessalonian church and even Christians today are empowered to persevere through the hardships and trials because their longing is to behold God without hindrance, right? It reminds me of Stephen the martyr, in the book of Acts, that while he was being stoned, he saw the Lord in his throne. And likewise, we suffer. Our eyes have to be um, on that beatific vision. And Paul saw this fruit in the Thessalonian church that everyone had their eyes set on God. And so his prayer was filled with thanksgiving for witnessing the fruit um, of this church. And hopefully we can model that, not only the, the church's side, but even our prayers that we would have that same interest, that same desire. Um, anyway, in conclusion, Paul concludes this passage by restating that he and the elders are praying for this. Uh, he says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So essentially he's saying that he prays that God may continue to produce those fruits of grace in them. Not by their own power, but by the power of God. And verse 12 tells us that the end goal of all of this is so that the name of Jesus may be glorified in them according to the grace of God. And so Paul has God's glory in mind in his prayers. We have to ask ourselves, do we have God's glory in mind when we pray? He also has the spiritual maturity of the saints in his mind. There are things that Paul's soul groans for that are heavenly minded. And as we read this and other Pauline prayers, 
I hope even as we go through this class next week and further on, that, that we see these things and we, and we allow it to um, help us to examine our own prayers in our own mind. Ask yourself, are you too earthly minded in your prayers? Do we pray thanking God when we see another brother or sister maturing? Are we too pragmatic in our solutions to people's spiritual maturity? When we want to see them grow, do we pray or do we manipulate them by means of the flesh? Anyway, Paul sets the right framework by exemplifying gratitude for signs of grace for the people he prays for. So, again, I pray that we would have the same heart uh, and the same mind in our prayers. Uh, any last uh, questions or thoughts? Yeah, Dan. I think it's important to note about the retribution that we, we shouldn't do that as something to take enjoyment out of, that people should be judged for their sin. Like, God may judge righteously, but I don't believe he finds enjoyment in sin. Um, we shouldn't either. If we see somebody do something wrong and we say, oh, they got this punishment and we feel good about it, but really we want them to, it's just and it's right, but we want them to turn from their sin. Amen. Be in the vindication. So. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm thinking along the same lines. Um, it's, I think it's, it's rather humbling and good to think through yeah, the fact that. Um, we, God is glorified in uh, paying everyone their just penalty and you know, do see evil around us and just knowing and resting the fact that God will punish them, they won't get away with that. But um, at the same time, we realize that even they could turn from their sin and turn to Christ, and so they will be spared the punishment that, in a sense, we do hope for the punishment for that sin, right? Which causes us to realize that it really truly was reconciled. Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amen. That we receive that same kind of mercy. Yeah. Amen. 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 Yeah. On the issue of judgment, um, I think that something that we should also consider <clears throat> is that keeping that mindset of when evil is done towards us or injustice is done towards us, mm-hmm. that at some point uh, God will repay that. Um, with that same line of thought, we have to remember that when things like that are done to us by fellow believers, or even if they're not, and right. become believers later, that sin is still dealt with, and just recompense is given. Right. But Christ stands in their stead just like he did ours. Yes. And that is forgiven in him. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point. And the interesting thing in this ought to make you think about how we understand God, but that punishment that God would have inflicted on you for being a sinner, we know that he would have been happy in doing so because scripture says that he was pleased when he did it to his own son. And so that, that, that's, a, that's a hard thing to understand. Um, reminds me of that verse in uh, Revelation. It, it's, it's passing my mind. Um, where the saints would be applauding, um, you know, when God brings about his justice. And it, it's, a, it's a strange, well, it's not strange, but it, it's, it's a hard truth to understand because none of us here deserve grace. You know, this is sort of what Dan was saying. Um, therefore, on a horizontal level, we should have sympathy and we should be gracious to other believers. We shouldn't want their destruction. 
We also, at the same time, have to believe that that, that punishment is, is right. And that punishment glorifies God um, because God is a God of just uh, uh, justice. Excuse me. Um, so it, it's a hard thing to manage, but it is a reality that we have to understand um, and we have to live with because this is, this is, this is what the future looks like for us. Um, and in the end, we, we'll find ourselves agreeing with the punishment that God is placing upon people we love, which is, which is, is a hard truth to swallow. You know, I have family members that I would never want to see in hell. But some way, shape, or form, uh, some way, or shape, or form, um, in the future, I'm going to find myself aligning with God's punishment. And I'm going to be saying amen when it happens. And, and um, but to put Dan's point, too, we, we want to do what we can to, to pray for our unbelieving family and to have love and, and, and sympathy for them and, and hope that the Lord would, would save them. Um, but yeah, uh, those, those of them who eventually come to Christ, well, it wasn't that God decided not to do punishment, but he put it upon his son, and, and he was pleased to do so. so. Anyway, we're out of time. I'm open for questions. I'm going to stick around if, if you have any. Um, let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, we see that the beauty of Paul's prayer um, is that he is focused on you and he cares for the saints because he loves you and uh, we're just blessed by his prayers uh, they were spirit inspired prayers and we want to we want you to be glorified in our own prayers and this verse serves as an encouragement a model and we desire father that our prayers would flow from a heart that desires to see you glorified and your people mature in faith and love and so we ask that you would shape us in this way, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.